Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. For today's show, I've got something that I know I quite often say this, but genuinely very, very, very interesting. I uh, I had a, a, a first conversation um, with this guest a couple of weeks ago, and you know I, I it's not that often where I come away from a conversation talking about battery technology thinking bloody hell <laughs> I didn't realize any of that um, but I had a great conversation with Nick Kitchen from Cumulus Energy Storage a couple of weeks ago and very quickly thought you know what I've got to get Nick on the podcast so I twisted his arm and he's very kindly agreed to come on the show today and talk more about what they are doing so welcome to the show Nick. Thanks so much indeed Ryan nice to be with you thank you. So could we just start, as has become customary, just with an introduction to you? So if you could just let everyone know your background and, and how you got into this. Okay, well, if I thought I was going to be where I am at the moment when I first started, um, I'd, I'd been absolutely amazed. But anyway, I started out as a as a factory Charles Mechanical, Mechanical Engineer with an engineering degree from Southampton. Um, I then joined Shell, so I had a, a pretty classic blue chip background which was great. And then Shell, at the plant I was on at Carrington in, on the west side of Manchester, big chemical site, making lots of plastic, which won't go down very well at the moment with lots of listeners on your call. But nonetheless, it was a really good start for me. And we went through a big culture change program and structural change um, program um, in the mid 80s. And then I, I went to London Business School right. uh, for two years to, to do my MBA there. That's where I met Darren, who's now our COO. We'll talk about him a bit later. And then uh, on from that to various packaging companies, general manager background, um, polyurethane foam. And then, um, again, a culture change program, wrote a book, and then uh, effectively helped about 250 small and medium-sized enterprises to help get their strategy right. And um, so lots of strategic consultancy. And I ended up in 2012 or thereabouts, I was analyzing the offshore wind power industry, trying to work out whether we could do something significant in that. And I was on the, and this is really where the Cumulus Energy Storage story starts. Um, I was on a conference on the Humber and I was listening to the politicians and they were talking about 7,000 wind turbines and 50 billion by 2020 and the same amount of steel as the car industry. And I was thinking, gosh, these are big numbers. How do I find out what we could actually end up doing? Because I really didn't have a clue at that point in time. but. I, I was I was lucky enough to go on something called the learning journey across to California. Yeah. And at the end of that week, well, one particular conversation I remember um, at one of the universities we went to, uh, this particular professor said, if you really want to do something significant, what you really should do is you should bring in a disruptive technology and intersect that with a wave of opportunity. And I immediately thought that's exactly what we're actually trying to do here. So... Um, it was with that that I then went on and had my initial chats with Darren, who introduced me to Mike, who's now our CTO, and that's where we started talking about um, batteries and energy storage. So that's the start of our our, our program. So it's a really fascinating um, background there. 
And the uh, the book is still in print, I, I believe. The book may well still be in print, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it's not been, not many copies that sold. So it's a long time ago. So yeah, don't bother looking for it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's too it's too it's too it's still in date. You know, it's still very appropriate. It's about leadership and it's about culture change. Yeah, and it's about how to make those sorts of things happen. But um, as I say, that was a that was a long time ago. So I enjoyed enjoyed writing that. Thank you. Ah, very good. So solid solid technical background there, but really. Um, to get into something completely different uh, in terms of, you know, renewable energy sector and um, and the grid uh, grid storage in particular must have been a been a huge leap for you. Well, when I when I first decided to have a closer look at this, I thought I'm going to have to get immersed in it. So where better to go than Copenhagen? Um, the European Wind Energy Association had a conference on for a week, so I had a chance to talk to a really really wide range of of people at that conference. And I inevitably got the slight sort of raised eyebrow um, when I said, I don't really know what I want to do yet, but I know we want to do something significant. Where are the innovation opportunities? And fortunately, one of the ladies from the European Wind Energy Association took me under her wing, very nice of her, and she introduced me to all sorts of different people. And by the end of that week, I actually had quite a long list of potential opportunities. uh, And then it was about distilling that down after my conversation with Darren over in California um, a, a few weeks later, so that we could then um, identify and home in on what we should end up end up doing. We identified three big projects, yeah. um, but as I say, the one that was really interesting for everybody was, was the energy storage. And, it, and what's interesting it, for me on that is you're yeah. sort of, you took, it, it, it's very different to a lot of other kind of innovation stories where, you, I think the classic in people's mind is the kind of mad professor has this amazing invention in the garden shed and then sets about um, trying to commercialize it. But you, you were actually, uh, you're doing something that a lot of corporates really struggle to do. You were sort of thinking in a very deep and strategic way about this sector and, and how to move in on um, on an opportunity in the space. But in in a very sort of structured and, and deliberate manner, it's, it's a... Yep really interesting um way to get to get move into it well i wouldn't i wouldn't be doing what i was what i'm doing now or we wouldn't be doing what we're doing now had i not been to london business school and done my mba yeah and all the strategic thinking and the analysis and of course numerous case studies and things um but when you start applying that kind of learning plus all the people i've been mixing with for the previous 10 years or so um at sme level then um applying that knowledge and trying to do it strategically to try and come up with something that was going to be significant. I, I didn't want a, you know, this is a lifestyle business. Yeah. Um, I didn't necessarily have to have something I knew a lot about already, as long as I had the right team around me who could um, put those skills and those strengths into the, into the team, then that was, that was fine. It was about doing something significant for the planet. Yeah. It was about doing something that was very, very scalable and, um, and something where it was what I would call a blue ocean as opposed to a red ocean. Yep. So Rennie Morburn's uh, book, yep. Red Ocean, Blue Ocean, etc. Um, and that's precisely where Mike's concept, Mike Hurwitz, our CTO, his concept for the battery um, came from. And that's literally where, where the whole thing started. So, ah, okay. yeah, it's just quite strategic. So perfect segue into um, telling us what is it that Cumulus... Do. So cumulus, cumulus energy storage, um, as everybody says, 
it's fine when renewables have the, you know, the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, mm. that the electricity is being generated, but that may not be at the time that it's actually needed. Yeah. And that's this is the big issue for renewables, as, as everybody is, is aware. So we spotted, as I say, back in 2014 um, or thereabouts, that's when we really got going. Uh, we spotted the fact that large scale, low cost, long duration energy storage was something that was missing from the mix. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, uh, you know, I've already talked about raised eyebrows at, at the European Wind Energy Association conference. But when I started talking about talking to people about energy storage, they were sort of saying, what's that? Why are you interested in that? Mm. Now, obviously, the conversations today are totally different, but that was yeah. where it was up to at that particular point in time. So um, we had to work out what we wanted and needed to do. So the, the basic principle and premise that this that we founded the company on is I challenged Darren to challenge Mike to say, okay, if we want to make batteries, which ones should we make and why? Yep. And Mike's response was, we should start with large-scale tried and tested chemistries from typically either the water industry or the mining industry. Mm. And we ended up choosing the mining industry. And um, we should take those large-scale processes, we should actually make them slightly smaller to make them suitable for energy storage. And what this will do is it'll it'll reduce our risk, it'll reduce the development time and it'll take an awful lot of cost out of our development program so rather than trying to do what lithium's been doing for a long period of time in terms of making something that's relatively small and make it much much bigger we've actually been going in completely the opposite direction so with the associated benefits of doing that so we selected the mining industry we now a lot of i bet i can imagine people listening to this and now going what 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 could they possibly be doing <laughs> from the mining industry, which is where I was at when I was talking to you? It blew me away where you kind of took this uh, this concept um, from. We say, well, what 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 is it you've brought in from the mining side? Okay, so if you want to extract metals from an ore, you have to first you go through a two stage process. You leach the metals out of the ore to start with, and then you go through a process called electrowinning. And electro-winning is, you know, very large plants, you know, hundreds, of, hundreds of megawatts, and those plants last for a long period of time. And essentially, you have electrodes in the electrolyte, and you're continuously coating those electrodes with copper or zinc or other non-ferrous metals. You physically scrape those, the, scrape the copper and the zinc off the electrodes, put the electrodes back in, and you build it up again, and you just keep repeating that process. Yep. So this is a way of, it's a sort of one-way process, if you like. But the... Mm-hmm. The interesting thing that Mike did was he, he went a stage further than that. He said, okay, Volta, some 200 years ago, he had a battery that consisted of discs of copper and zinc with some cardboard and some brine in between. Again, a single-use battery used in the telegraph industry for many, many years. Um, and he said, well, I wonder if we could make that rechargeable. And he thought about it and said, well, if we put a membrane in between the, the copper and the zinc discs in Volta's battery we could prevent the copper and the zinc going to the opposite electrode and therefore potentially end up with, and this is exactly where we have ended up, um, effectively two electro-winning plants back-to-back but separated by a membrane. So what happens is every time we charge the battery, copper goes into solution, zinc electro-wins onto the zinc electrode. Mm. Every time we discharge, zinc goes into solution, copper electro-wins onto the copper electrode. So every time we do a complete cycle, we're actually refreshing the electrodes 
So we don't see this capacity curve, this capacity fade that people keep talking about with lithium and lead and various other battery technologies. It's the, the wear component is, is the membrane. Yeah. So I think we've been really, really lucky, but we've managed to patent all this. So we're now the only company in the world, luckily, that can make and sell rechargeable copper zinc batteries, which is quite amazing since people have had 200 years to do this. Yeah, well, I mean, it's I've been in the battery space for quite a while and it's not something that I'd come across before. Um, so it is, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic innovation. And, you know, I, I mentioned before we started on this call, I love the fact that you're in the UK um, and, and you're in the north as well. So... You're, you're... We're in Yorkshire. <laughs> best place. Best, well, with, with the Northeast being a possible exception, given the person I'm talking to at the moment. <laughs> um, the, York, Yorkshire, fantastic place. Um, so lots of lots of innovative businesses based at the Advanced Manufacturing Park. Uh, it's in Rotherham, but it's actually close to Sheffield. Yep. Very close links with the University of Sheffield for fairly obvious reasons as a consequence of that. Um, it, you know, it is a really, really good place to be. And then our R&D facilities is over in the US, in California, um, which is where Darren and Mike are. So we've actually got our foot in two, I would describe as key countries right. involved in energy storage. And um, so I think we've got the, the best of both worlds, uh, even if there is a time difference between the two. So yeah, it's been good. And it is good. Presumably the, um, the, the membrane that you are using is a, a special kind of membrane that allows um, electrons to migrate across it in much a sort of similar way to the, the membranes in a, a lithium battery would work. It, it's, 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 not, it's not the same as lithium. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is a widely used membrane. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you too much about it, unfortunately, because of um, constraints in terms of patent applications. Yeah. But, okay. but essentially what it does is it stops the copper and the zinc ions going through um, and therefore contaminating the opposite electrode. But um, it's it's designed to be a low-resistance electrode. Mm. It's designed to help us get a very high round-trip efficiency from from our system. And what it means is that we have, have an assembly process that is very closely aligned to the automotive industry, which I suspect is another reason for being of interest to your listeners, hopefully. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we have two pressed metal pans that form the structural part of the electrodes. We coat the insides of those with the copper and the zinc. And those two pressed pans then um, effectively um, come, to, come together. They, they, they form each side of the membrane. And then in the two voids that we create, as a consequence of that, we put in the liquid electrolyte. Right. So this is very much an aqueous battery, but it is not a flow battery. Right. There are no pumps, no, you know, no, um, no, no parasitic losses in terms of having to move liquid around the system, etc. So again, it's designed to be very simple, very low cost, but also very green. Right. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. So, and and these are you, you're really aiming at big bat like proper big these, batteries with these, yeah. Yeah, these these, these are seriously big batteries. Um, a small battery would be in a forty five foot container, for example. Yeah, standard shipping, you know, forty-five foot standard shipping container. And you were saying uh, that, that it's not like in a forty-five foot container in a small box in the corner. It it is the forty-five no. foot container. That's it's. So these are these, giants. These, these are yeah. These are designed for large scale applications, mm. grid scale. Um, so just to give you a feel for some numbers, so a small battery for us would be two hundred and fifty kilowatts, yeah. stroke one megawatt hour system. Yeah. That would be in a forty-five foot container, up to potentially 100 megawatts, 400 megawatt hour system, which I think would make us one of the largest batteries in Europe. Yeah. Um, 
that's the kind of scale. And that would obviously be inside a building. So yeah. that's, the, that's the scale. But that's the kind of scale that the the industry or industries, if you like, need. Um, because that's the kind of scale that people are operating at, in, certainly in terms of transmission, distribution. Yeah. And you know, batteries are getting bigger. Wind farms are getting bigger. The cost of wind energy is getting lower. Cost of solar is getting lower. Solar farms are getting bigger. Everything's getting bigger. Mm. So, as I say, the missing link is having this longer duration storage. So, and it, yeah, it's a good, a good place to be. Apart from the kind of obvious, um, so, you know, th- there's been a huge amount of development in batteries in the automotive space, uh, yeah. typically on higher energy densities, making, you know, more energy, more power into smaller and smaller and lighter and lighter and, and cheaper because its costs have, have fallen uh, drastically. Um, typically lithium lithium packs and lithium's kind of become the the um, the chemistry of choice for now uh, although there's you know some other st- interesting stuff coming through um, on that but you, you're I guess deploying those automotive cells in grid scale applications like a four megawatt hour or 400 megawatt hour uh, made out of um, 18650s is is an almost unimaginable <laughs> like you couldn't you really wouldn't wouldn't do that no that's quite right yeah you might have yes. a cheap cell but you're going to have a very 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 complex and expensive battery in eds by the time you finish so you've really kind of taken a, a, a different approach where lots of people are, are looking at well we can use automotive type cells and and you know that we get the advantage of this of the scale from the automotive side there and the cost you've You've said, no, we're going to make something very specific for grid energy storage. It's not going to be any good for automotive, but we don't care. We're not interested in, in stuff with wheels on. We want it to stay still and, um, and, and, and tackle that market head on with something fit, you know, specifically designed for that purpose. The, 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 way, the way our battery cells are manufactured is very closely aligned with the automotive industry. In terms of the, um, in terms of the materials that we're using, in terms of the application, in terms of the cradle-to-cradle, that whole life of it and, and, and our, our ability to extend that life out to more like 30 years. So it's more of an infrastructure asset than a battery in that sense. Yeah. Um, and it fits the same kind of lifetime as various other components in the electricity network. So, yeah, we've, we've done this very specifically and, and deliberately um, with a view to ending up with this low cost um, energy storage system that's very, very scalable, but also environmentally friendly. So, we, we needed to, to think about um, this, what sort of scale that we like you to end up at or potentially end up at. And would we end up with some sort of environmental issue uh, in terms of material availability if we did this? Yeah. So you've probably seen various forecasts um, recently to do with Europe's um, battery capacity, for example, up in the sort of circa 400 or thereabouts gigawatt hours per year yeah. capacity by, I think, 2024. Um, so if you if you want to think about that, then we really do need to be talking about hundreds of gigawatt hours rather than you know a few megawatt hours, etc. Yeah. But at, at you know hundred gigawatt hours, even if we just kept on going at hundred gigawatt hours a year, then it will still take about well certainly in excess of a thousand years to use up the world's resources of zinc and copper. Yeah. Um, and if you if you look at it as a percentage of the total production capacity, the annual production capacity of copper and zinc at, at the moment. It's, you know, it's well under 2%. So it's a lot lower than both cobalt and lithium right now yep. as a percentage of annual production. So I really don't see that as a, as a constraint. And obviously, it's about from all over the world. No 
concentration of the elements in a specific country or countries. And the the, the very big um, battery systems, I mean, it's part of the argument that people have developed for um, grid-scale hydrogen. You know, you see some big projects coming online. There was some big announcements a couple of weeks ago from Germany um, in terms of what they were doing. The EU's announced some big um, hydrogen projects. And, and, and essentially the gist of those is um, it's not practical to store um, energy with electrochemistry um, at a sufficient scale for for big grid support for uh, for renewables. So their kind of their plan is we will uh, create green hydrogen from renewables. We can store the hydrogen and then we can either um, turn it back into electricity through a f- uh, fuel cell or, or, or some other means, but at massive scale, at these sort of like hundreds of uh, megawatt hour type um, scale. And that's understood technology in terms of big gas storage is easy, you know, easy to do. People know how to do it. But your your system really, it strikes me, would be coming in um, and be competing against that kind of technology with with a much more efficient uh, round trip efficiency than you could ever deliver with a with a hydrogen system. Is that is that the kind of thing you're aiming for, or is it? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't actually class hydrogen as a competitor to us. Okay. Um, there are some alternative, you know, liquid electric liquid electrolyte battery systems. The sort of you know, four, six, eight hours kind of duration delivery. Mm. They're, they're much more closely aligned with us in terms of being direct competitors. But I'm sure you will have heard, heard this said before. Um, at the end of the day, there, are, there will be a large range of technologies required mm. to, in terms of all different forms of energy storage, you know, sub-second right the way through to, you know, seasonal storage in order to deliver the total needs and turn us into this genuine low carbon economy um we can rely on the sun apart from else and the wind to um to 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 fuel us in the main yeah so um as i said i really don't really see hydrogen as as a competitor um it's quite expensive apart from else. you're not you don't see as a competitor in terms of because that just fills a different space in the market or because it's a different is... space in the market ah, it's doing okay, a completely right. different job yes yeah. um i wasn't sure so... if you're just trying to say it. we're just so much better than hydrogen it's no 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 no, no, no. <laughs> no we, we've different space. No, we, I, I can sell this but you know all, i can sell this all day yeah. but at the end of the day there are disadvantages to what we do as well as advantages and it's like all the other technologies out there it's about selecting the right kinds of applications that um play to the particular technology's strengths. Yeah. Um, that's that's what this is about. So hydrogen in one space, flow batteries in another space, lithium's in another space. So again, lithium and copper zinc, very much complementary sets of characteristics, mm-hmm. complementary offerings. And I, we, we see lithium really being used mainly in the um, in the EV market. Mm-hmm. And if you look at some of the Bloomberg's forecasts, you know, 8,000, 9,000 gigawatt hours cumulative um, usage of, of lithium, for example, um, then you know, 80, 90 percent of that is in EVs. Yeah. Well, you're not going to want to you, when when you've got all that battery um, res- resource in the electric vehicle market itself. It's, it's being driven around and it's being put into cars for obvious reasons. And you've had numerous people on on your show before talking about that. Whereas when you then start talking about the EV recharge or battery applications. You're going to want a low-cost, environmentally-friendly system that can facilitate that, and yeah. that's where we sit. And that's why I really don't see lithium as a 
I mean, there are some examples out there now of, you know, four hour, even five hour, six hour duration lithium storage. But is it a sensible way to move forwards? Yeah. No, I think there are much better ways of doing it, personally. It's interesting because it's a big part of, um, oh, obviously, the big, not necessarily the big, biggest in terms of scale but the biggest certainly in terms of noise in the market is is tesla and and a, a big kind of pillar of their business moving forwards i mean they, they went as far as changing the name of the company um so that you know they're sort of an energy energy business now um that, that also happens to make cars and they've sort of looked quite hard for for lots of opportunities for their lithium um batteries and grid storage is is a sector that they're um they're really sort yeah, they're of pushing right. on, you know. Yep, I agree uh, with that. And and would you see the systems that that Tesla are kind of putting into the market as being um, competing with you, or, or or being different to the the kind of systems that you would provide? Well, one one thing I've got to be really thankful to Elon Musk for is he has managed to get the whole solar PV plus EVs plus energy storage get that message out so that. I don't have to explain what energy storage is anymore. Mm. Every time I just put those two words together, everybody goes, "Oh yes, I understand. That's interesting." Yeah. And what what you know, which specific bit are you, are you doing? So uh, he he because of his background and you know, brand and all the rest of it, is able to um, tweet various things to certain people in certain parts of the world and get reactions. And he's very able to move very quickly and he's got a lot of financial muscle behind him yep. um, to facilitate that but fun- fundamentally he's also playing in the energy storage market he also has to make sure that his technology and installations and all the rest of it have the appropriate returns and he will be playing to lithium's strengths yep. and you know he's changing the chemistry as well the, the, the batteries etc to you know, optimize you know, reduce cobalt and lots lots of things that he's doing as as indeed a lots of other people um but yeah you're right he's probably the one that most people will know about mm. most readily um but actually where they where they as well as you know where most of their batteries seem to come from panasonic yeah so he's not actually manufacturing well he might be in germany shortly but um yeah. To my knowledge, at the moment, he's not really manufacturing that many batteries. He might be doing battery packs, but not the batteries themselves. Yeah, the then, yeah. Then they're putting together packs with cells. You know, in Panasonic's been their partner for a long time. Um, very, very almost. It's almost a sort of coexistence with them and other suppliers as well now in China and, and potentially yes, bringing some in-house uh, for themselves. Yep. So I, I guess from that, it, it, you, your system you know, would be kind of, would be competing against the large batteries that Tesla are putting out for grid storage. But your, what, what's your differentiator then? How, how can you sort of take on um, that, 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 how can you take on that? Okay. So um, I might be stating the obvious here, but the thing that drives the overall cost of a system is the cost of its materials, its active materials. Uh, the balance of plants, so all the bidirection inverters and those sorts of things, packaging, etc., is pretty much, you know, it doesn't really matter which chemistry you're using for that. That's mm-hmm. pretty similar yep. uh, regardless of the, of the chemistry. So the thing that's key to differentiate and the key that's, that's there to drive the cost down is actually the cost of the active materials. And because we're using copper and zinc, which are low cost, certainly compared to some of the materials that are used in, in lithium batteries, yeah. um, low, low cost um, they're, they're all commodity products, and therefore, as we scale up 
and and our our intention, by the way, or at least our aim, is to is to help reemploy some of the people from the automotive industry, and reemploy them in our um, energy storage assembly plants. And those assembly plants, they could be not necessarily quite as large as some of the automotive ones, but certainly you know getting heading in that general direction. Yeah. So we're talking about some significant employment, but we're also talking about significant scale. And therefore, we're talking about significant cost reductions in terms of supply chain, unit cost manufacturing. And it's a really, really simple process to put our system together. And we also don't need sophisticated uh, battery management systems. We don't need you know, lots and lots of layers of sophistication that we can strip out simply because it's a low energy density system. It's a system that's got lots of water in it. So thermally, it's very stable. It's very heavy. Um, yeah, we just we don't have to manage every single cell. Just just simple, simple, simple. Two key principles: low cost and keep it simple. And that's, those are the two things. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of the winner, isn't it? For um, in grid storage, some of the some of the things that are important characteristics for automotive just just don't matter. You know, the the energy density isn't significant. Um, I mean, sure, it gets to a point where it does become an issue in terms of having the physical land space available for for a battery. But you, you'd have to be pretty big batteries other than that. But then, um, really, the the if, if you're operating this as an energy asset, it it just comes down to commercials, doesn't it? At the end of the day, in terms of what's your cost to produce that, what's its life cycle, what's then the total cost of ownership, and and how does that compare yep. to a lithium pack? Yep. So so two things. It- can I just talk about the applications for a second? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So, 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 and just to give you a feel for you know where, where would the where would we uh, use our system? So, offshore wind, from the UK perspective, is one of the key strategic aims. Um, obviously, huge growth, but obviously the offshore wind has to come onshore at some point. And if we can put one of our systems next to the onshore substation, we could then operate a transmission level and have a DC DC connection and a really really high rancher proficiency as a consequence of that and facilitate that offshore wind to get to where it needs to get to at the right time as a consequence. Uh, another application would be enabling more wind-generated electricity in Scotland to then go through the transmission system down towards the southeast of England where most of the demand is. That's quite constrained. You know, interconnector markets from UK, sorry, from England or, or Wales, sorry, between Wales and Ireland and yep. Wales and Scotland and vice versa, those interconnector markets, for example, and they, they could also apply across to continental Europe as well. Yep. And then if you really want to go slightly further afield, then diesel engine genset replacement markets, so electrification of the mining industry across Australia, um, 600 million people in India, with sorry, in Africa, with no electricity. So we could, for example, do microgrids, with our energy storage as part of that, yeah. or diesel engine genset again replacement in in India to help 300 million people there with again either intermittent or no electricity currently. So the, the range of applications is, is absolutely massive. Um, so anyway, th- that's that's that bit of it. And I think you asked me another question before, which I've quietly forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I was drilling down in terms of the commercial aspects, and the, oh yes, you know, cost. basically yep. it's cost, cost, cost. Um, yep. But the the, the um, essentially, yeah, the, the total cost of ownership um, model for this sounds like it's got some advantages over a lithium battery system. Yep. So so 
Um, there, there are two key aspects to, to cost. One is obviously the original CapEx cost, yeah. which everyone's very familiar with. And then there's also the levelized cost of storage, um, which is something that Lazards have been able to facilitate over the last, I think, five, six, seven years now. Um, and that levelized cost of storage is really the lifetime cost of the system in a net present value calculation. I won't bore you with all the details. But essentially, if you compare the different technologies for similar size applications, um, you can then do, assuming that the revenue streams are the same, uh, then obviously the lower the levelized cost of storage, the better the returns should be for that particular project. That's the logic. Mm. And this the, this particular levelized cost of storage does include things like end-of-life costs. Right. So lithium would need to pay for, for, um, for that end-of-life cost for for recyclability, for example, whereas we will get paid. But all, all those costs, charging costs, uh, CapEx costs, and all the rest of maintenance costs, they're all included in that levelized cost of storage um, calculation. So it's quite a re- it's a really good way of actually comparing for the same application uh, or the same project, which chemistry or which application, which technology should I be using for this particular application. And so we've done, we've used their model and we've looked at how our levelized cost of storage compares with lithium yeah. and lithium and then how that compares with flow batteries. So if you take the lowest um, cost for lithium and then you take our copper zinc cost, when we get up to scale, we will actually have a, low, a lower levelized cost of storage than lithium. So that, again, is a key message to, to put into the marketplace. Um, but it, that's where we expect to be lower than lithium. Right. So better life cycle costs overall than yep. the um, than the lithium packs, and you yep. you mentioned the flow batteries, um, which there's, there's a few of those sort of coming into the market. Uh, yep. I'm guessing I'm mean, clearly you wouldn't be doing it if you didn't think it was commercially um, competitive. But you're you're competitive as well with the the sort of flow batteries and that kind of thing. Well, the, the flow. I'm not here to knock the competition. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the flow batteries. So vanadium redox does use very expensive components. Mm. You, you can't get away from that. To the point where they're currently leasing the vanadium part of the battery system. It's just as a means of taking that out as part of the CapEx cost. Right. And then um, the zinc bromine, uh, that has got some fairly significant environmental aspects that need to be thought about quite carefully. So the vanadium redox and zinc bromine will have niche applications but I honestly can't see how either of those can really be very, very large scale, um, you know, the mainstream application for the grid scale markets. So yes, as I, as I mentioned before, we need a whole a wide range of different technologies with different applications. But if you want, and just the same that lithium has become the incumbent for EV market, for example, yeah. then cumulus and our rechargeable copper zinc we see this as, as where it should should end up going with regard to us becoming the incumbent for the stationary energy storage market okay. that's what we're trying to achieve so uh, finally my next question was literally about to be where do you see this going for cumulus you know are, are you going to grow and be a, a vast manufacturing um, operation are you more of an energy services provider are you going to license this technology down the line? What's what's the kind of what is the what does the future hold for for um, on that front? We we originally thought about setting up 
and selling energy storage systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think initially that's precisely what we will be doing. But I think that further downstream, we will, because we're not really adding any any value through you know, buying in and then applying uh, a bi-direction inverter, it's not really adding value. Where we add value is through the chemistry and our own uh, IP, our own knowledge, if you like. Um, that's where we're really, really adding value. So I think we'll end up selling batteries as opposed to battery systems right. um, or energy storage systems. Um, and in terms of what, what, you know, what would we like to see, what would we like to do? Well, we'd really love to be able to set up a gigafactory. And I know this is becoming all the rage and this is a um, yeah. slightly over, overused term already. Um, but a gig, gig, you know, gigafactory in the UK making stationary storage that's environmentally friendly, that helps renewables. Um, we just need a little bit of government support to facilitate our production facility. And then you know, the likes of British Volt and their 30 gigawatts hour and their, their 1 billion float that was mentioned over the weekend. Yeah. Well, why not? Yeah. I mean, literally, why not? Yeah. Um, so you have you have to think about that kind of scale uh, to be to be competitive in, in the overall marketplace. So we, we are thinking big. We want to, we want to do something very significant, and then in terms of the bigger vision, um, rather than us trying to do things in each individual continent, we'd like to partner with large, um, large strategic corporates, right. so that we have one, for example, in Australia, another one in India, another one in South America, and such like, where they facilitate gigafactory equivalents, and we end up with a number of different gigafactories where we can share our experience and our knowledge and our patents and all the rest of it, and and get those those plants licensed. So we end up with licensing uh, royalty revenues and license fees for each megawatt hour that's produced. So we don't we don't necessarily need and want to manufacture globally, yeah. but certainly the opportunities are global. So yeah. let's let's go there and do that. And do, do you see those sort of bigger players in the, the, the traditional? I mean, in, in the start again in the automotive market, the traditional incumbents have really hurt a lot. Um, so in the in the energy market, you've got the GEs and Alstoms and Siemens, etc., who, who have in, in the past been building these large thermal power plants and the transmission and distribution hardware. Do you see any of those guys taking an interest in the, the energy storage markets, uh, being good people? Well, I mean, again, you know, Siemens and AS, etc., Fluence, as it's now called, um, are... It, have a have a pretty high profile to be honest with you in in this marketplace already. Um, GE is, has got various energy storage um, technologies that it's currently working with. Um, so yes, I do see these these large strategic corporates. You know, many many of them, as the world changes from you know, high carbon and and all the, uh, the the power station. All the, all the rotating equipment and all the rest of it, as that changes significantly, which it is doing very quickly, then the companies involved in those markets have now got to find alternative sources yeah. of income. So at some point further down the road, then yes. Now, whether it's going to be an automotive business or whether it's going to be an energy company that ends up owning large amounts of energy storage, and I don't mean for specific projects, but... Yeah. It just takes on that whole technology space. Um, I'm not quite sure which way it's going to end up, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if an energy company eventually ended up be, becoming someone that works alongside an automotive 
company, but doing the stationary bit yeah. is distinct from the, the EV markets. Yeah. So that's that's a distinct possibility. But I think the the, you know, the energy companies, and I used to work for one, um, uh, they've got a way to go, to be fair. Right. But, but this, the, the change is happening. The, the realization is out there now. It's obvious from the uh, strategic changes and thoughts and what you keep reading every day. There's the, the drivers are out there. COVID yeah. has given us an insight, um, a glimpse into the future. So, yeah, it's becoming more and more obvious that that little lot needs to change. So. It is because, you, I mean, you mentioned the electric, um, the electric vehicle piece there and the grid storage. One of the big objections people often have to mass deployment of electric vehicles is the charging infrastructure. Big problem with the charging infrastructure is the grid infrastructure um, in places, but particularly for high um, demand, you know, like a truck depot or a bus depot. These are these are huge, huge challenges that need to be overcome. And um, grid st- grid sort of buffering batteries is, is um, one of the ways of doing that. But the cost at the minute is very, very high um, to drop a, a system like that in. And it, it, it basically, I've heard people say, effectively doubles the cost of deployment of something like electric bus or truck fleet to have to do a a grid um, storage system in your in your depot when you are talking you know in, in the order of uh, megawatt hours that, that you need um, if you're charging hundreds of trucks up you know it's a big it's a big system that you need to do that so these are these are huge um, there's some huge opportunities in amongst just even that space well it depends it depends how you do it mm. um, and getting rid of the need to upgrade the the overall infrastructure helps take a large chunk of the cost out of the system. So, so can you tell me um, then, so it's been really interesting to, to sort of discuss the market and the, and the applications in the future, I guess bringing it back to the, the present day, what's what's Cumulus doing today? Like where are you at as a business? What's, what stage are you at? How proven is all of this? Uh, what, what's, what's your kind of, uh, your current status? Okay, so we've, we've, um, we've been through several rounds of funding. Um, we've, we've had significant number of uh, UK government grants. Um, we are literally raising um, some money at the moment in order to be able to set up our own production facility, um, making a megawatt hour scale production on an annualized basis. Right. Um, and then the next step after that would be to then set up a full production facility, which would be circa 500 megawatt hours up to a gigawatt hour per year production capacity. Um, so the trick, of course, as you sort of alluded to, I think, uh, earlier on, is getting that next tranche of money in is the is the key one. Yeah. That's the bit that unlocks the production. That then means we can have demonstrator systems that people can come and look at. That then stimulates further investment in projects, and et cetera, et cetera. So right now we've, we've done some feasibility studies for um, an, an energy storage project in Ireland, which yeah. shows some very healthy digit, double-digit IRRs. Um, and another one in the southeast of England, which is co-located with a biomass plant. Um, so these projects are up in the sort of 50, 60, 70 gigawatt, uh, sorry, it's 50, 60, 70 megawatt hour scale, right. just to give you a feel for it. Right, um, but that's that's the kind of project that we're being asked to look at at the moment. Right. So so you basically, you need to get your, um, your investment sorted out for that um would you call it pilot production or is it just low? Yes, pilot, pilot production for the initial, um, you know, circa 
30 or 30 to 40 megawatt hours of production per year yeah. for the for the pilot production and then after that move on up to the you know 500 megawatt hours etc for annualized production and, so, so and then the, the gigafactory here we go the systems that you've made so far are they been kind of made lab scale kind of you've they're, they're, they're very much production intent so right. this the system the battery packs we've got at the moment are um full scale they're production intent um they've been made by the same sorry the components have been made by the same people we, we get to make our containerized systems yeah um so we, we, you know, we are very very close to getting that, that commercialization in place and how um, do you manage because one of the things with lithium batteries is, I mean, I've been in a number of cell plants and it's it's always quite entertaining. You know, you get togged up in the big white suit and uh, put your masks on and uh, walk through the big air blower and kind of then you're inside this sort of ultra clean environment uh, inside a normal Not lithium. Necessary. Ah, okay. So that, because I, I was thinking there, how have you, because if you want to pilot produce um Lithium cells, it's its really hard. I mean, that's, I talked to Kevin Brundish from uh, Amity Power a while ago, and that's they that's their business at the moment, doing, they've got this clean facility, they do pilot production for people on lithium cells because you, you it's such a huge capex to get that uh, manufacturing facility up and running. Um, but you, you, so you don't need that. We so don't need that. We, we, a lot of our processes are pretty industrial. Right. Um, the biggest electric electricity consume or consumption is for our what we call the forming process, mm. where we put the copper and the zinc on the insides of the two electrodes. Right. Um, but other than that, it's, it's an assembly process, and that's really where aligning that that whole skill set with you know if you think about a car, um, pressed metal pans. So you talk about door panels, for example, small door panels, so pressed metal parts for, for the automotive industry. Yeah. You then talk about an assembly process. Again, that's exactly what goes on in the automotive industry. Yeah. And automating that um, that whole assembly process uh, and, and having having those um, energy storage devices on automatic guided vehicles, for example, yeah. just going around the same sort of facilities you'd find in an automotive plant, using the same kind of robotics, again helps drive that that total cost down so that's that's the kind of thing that we've got in mind to uh, right. to help this move forward it is very closely aligned with that but we don't need you know we don't need the clean room conditions we don't need the expense of that our capex cost for our assembly plant our, our gigafactory and in inverted commas would be a lot lower than that for lithium gigafactories for example so again from that capex point point of view there's an initial much lower um capital requirement for that production facility which then rolls through obviously in terms of overhead reduction which then rolls through to total lower total cost of system as well so the whole thing as i said before is designed to be keep it simple and keep it low cost and so just to give people an idea so you're talking about uh basically a, a steel plate that is um, then coated with the zinc um, or the copper. So you've got a kind of electroplating process there. Yeah. So, so just to give you a feel for scale. So yeah, instead of talking about small, <laughs> yeah. So instead of talking about the small cylindrical shell cells that you typically get or pouches you get for the lithium. Yeah. This is a this is a large scale. So it, it's about a meter long. It's about two hundred millimeters tall, and it's you know, thirty to forty millimeters thick when you put the two pans together with that membrane clamped in the middle. So that's, that's an individual cell. Wow. So about 5,000 of those 
as opposed to 10 or 20 times that for a container for a megawatt hour. That's what we're talking about. And then you just have to, you put each of those cells in series and they're literally touching back to back. Mm. And copper zinc, copper zinc, copper zinc. Um, you, you slide those into racks along the long length of the, so you've got your 45 foot container, the long length of that, you inside that you have racking and you slide your cells in lengthways into the various parts of the racking. And then as I say, they all touch, so they're in series. So then you have strings of cells that you're managing, not individual cells you're managing. So again, it's another layer of complexity that's, that's taken out of the system. Right. It's just, it's really, really, really designed to be low cost, low cost, but really, really simple. And, and how, uh, I mean, a lot of the BMS, uh, the manage, management electronics on a lithium cell is because they don't like being overcharged. They don't like being undercharged. Um, so you can't fully discharge them, which creates issues with transport and such like. How does how do how do your cells perform um, in that that sort of way? Can you? So, so, so we don't have to manage each individual cell yeah. for, for a start. So we have, as I mentioned before, all the cells are in series in strings. So um, all that's happening with our cells is that we've got literally very gentle movement of metal from an electrode into solution, and then from solution onto an, onto another metal and back mm. back again. So we don't have the same kind of power density. We don't have the same kind of amount of energy. We don't have to don't have the same kind of fire risk, for example, that certain chemistries have got. Yeah. We just don't have that. We've got a very large thermal mass of water in each of our containers. That's the electrolyte. Yeah. So we might get a couple of degrees centigrade difference as we go through a complete charge, discharge cycle, etc. And even if we start even doing ancillary services and relatively large number of cycles, it's just, you know, it's a low energy dense system, yeah, and uh, it's just treated like a black box. You don't have to worry about dendrite growth or any of those sorts of things. Where you, you know, no, no, the vault and and you know, um, hydrogen coming off and all the rest of it. Mm. The, the voltage isn't high enough, right? Okay, so very no. very simple, stable. Yeah, uh, I mean, we'll have to, we'll have to mm. don't, don't get me wrong. We'll have to put fire extinguishers around, but it won't be it won't be for the chemistry. Yeah, electrical arc risk, I guess, <laughs> probably yeah. more than anything. It won't, be for the chem- won't be for the chemistry. Yeah, yeah. You always use some of the electrolyte to put the fire out. <laughs> um, maybe not. Yeah. We'd, like to re- we'd like to reuse that and recycle it. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, just to just to wrap up then, um, what, what, what are you kind of most looking forward to um, that you've got coming up over the next year? Um, well, just talking about the government and um, some of the, some of the policies of the Ofgem and all the rest of it, we've had some really good wins in this last month or so from Ofgem. Um, you know, the double charging bit, for example, and getting that taken, getting that removed as of next year. So, if we can get more policy decisions and more policy changes to help facilitate you know, larger scale storage, so another one being forty nine point nine megawatt scale storage, that that limit being removed as well. So they're all helping to increase the scale of the batteries. They're all helping to reduce the unit cost of the, of the systems. Yeah. That helps drive down the unit cost from the consumer point of view, as well as apart from anything else. So really, uh, what, what, you know, what are we looking to answer your question directly? In addition to those policy changes, um, getting getting our finance in place for the pilot line, yeah. moving on from that to also then set up the full production then building the relationships with strategic partners globally on a continental basis, 
um, and your intercontinental basis. That's the sort of thing that we were looking forward to um, to be able to move forward on. And um, just want to do something significantly positive <clears throat> for the world, but also for UK PLC. Yeah, oh, that's brilliant. I can totally understand that uh, that sentiment very much. Uh, what what motiv- motivates uh, motivates me and uh, is right. has been behind the avid journey as well. So fantastic! It's great to hear. So thanks, thank you, Nick. Thanks so much for taking the time out to do that today. Um, Sorry, the listeners won't hear it, but I will mention it because uh, you had to endure it. Um, so we'll edit out the interruptions. Um, we were interrupted a couple of times to sort of um, work from home, and it was all my fault, basically. So Nick uh, Nick, Nick, coped with that like a, an absolute um, pro, though, and uh, has done a, done a great job. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. Well, thank you very much indeed for asking me on the, on the program, uh, Ryan. Really enjoyed it. And um, hopefully it will be interesting for a number of your listeners as well. And, and if people want to get in touch, um, I think you've probably told them where the website is and, and we'll, we'll take it from there. But yeah. thanks so much indeed. I will. Uh, it's a good point, actually. I, we'll put some show notes in. Um, so if you go down to the show notes, we'll put some links in to, uh, to Nick so you can find him on uh, LinkedIn and uh, their corporate website. So you, you, uh, you can find where that is. Um, and any anything else that's come up in the conversation that um, I can link out to, I'll put links down in the show notes for that. So, so if you're interested, um, go and uh, go and, and check out the the show notes. Thank you very much indeed. Nice to talk to you. Well, that's all we've got time for today. I, I hope you found that interesting and got some value out of it. Um, rechargeable copper zinc. So, not something I had come across before. Um, I'll probably get howled at. Loads of people know about it already, but I personally hadn't hadn't seen that before i think it's fascinating nick's story and journey is is absolutely fascinating and how he came in to be doing what he's doing now i think um cumulus are really onto something there in terms of the potential for this technology um you know they're not trying to compete in the automotive space but really targeting this straight at the grid storage um market and and, and having a product that's suitable and, and designed specifically for that space um, i think is is a is a very uh, very sound business to be uh, to be involved in check out the show notes if you want some more links through to nick uh, don't forget to leave us a rating um, hit like and subscribe we've got some really really good uh, podcasts coming um, in the not too distant future so uh, don't forget to subscribe to our channel however you happen to uh, to to listen to us um, and i really look forward to speaking to you again soon